The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. All right, thank you. Be seated. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And guys and gals, guys and gal, thank you so much. I mean, it's so encouraging to us older folk to see such incredible young men and women uh, using their gifts to bring glory to God and we applaud that. And I know that y'all can't sound that good without putting a ton of work into what you're doing. So thank you for uh, serving the Lord that way. Well, we continue in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which is part of a series called Sent by the Sun. We send the kids out at this moment. I'm so glad they do that slide to remind me now. Uh, if you are third grade and under, you have a great class in the back waiting for you. You're welcome to stay with your parents if that is what they would rather do with you as well. Uh, we are working through uh, a series of sermons called the um, Discourses in Matthew. The Discourses in Matthew are times where Jesus sat down with his disciples and he said, let me explain what it means to be a disciple and let me explain what you're going to face. And then at the end of this series, at the end of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, the very last verses, Jesus sends them out. And so we have been sent by Jesus as disciples to go make disciples. That's why he saved us. He saved us to send us out. And so we are sitting with the disciples at the feet of Jesus, learning from him what does it mean to be a disciple and hopefully having a lot of questions answered as what we will face as we go out to make disciples. So do you remember what Jesus has been doing? In the Sermon on the Mount, he sat down with them. In the last couple of weeks, he's been saying, let me tell you the characteristics of my disciples. And it's important that we not lose sight of what I'm about to say, the characteristics of a disciple, because it's the root of the fruit that we're talking about. In the next several uh, sermons, we're going to be looking at very practical actions, at obedience, things that we should do. But if we, that's fruit of the root. If we lose the root, then we'll become very legalistic and you know, prideful, Pharisaic type people, which Jesus hammered them in the Bible. Jesus was like, look, you guys are all about your religion and you're all prideful about how religious you are, but you are dead on the inside. So we don't want to do that, okay? We want to remember that Jesus began with his disciples saying, listen, this is what it's all about. You have entered into holiness with God, poverty in spirit, poor in spirit, bankrupt in spirit. And so we all start this relationship as disciples on the humble ground that I am a sinner. And on my best day, on my most religious day, on whatever I say is the the most righteous day, it doesn't come near close enough to what God demands of me. And so with that brokenness, with that humility, with that poverty of spirit, I come to the Lord bankrupt empty-handed, and I say, look, I got no righteousness to offer. My only hope is that I'm trusting God that you will keep your promise and that you'll give me the righteousness of Jesus by faith. And that's the ground we stand on. We stand as broken sinners saved by the grace of God, and that produces within us a meekness, a meekness that is not a personality trait. It's not, oh, woe is me, a meekness that just understands that my standing before God, and my only righteousness is a gift. I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. That meekness, that new heart, that salvation, that conversion, that born again, that being filled with the Spirit of God, that radical new life, those are all different phrases, being a disciple, being a Christian, all that, that's what that means. Then 
The second week we saw, he says, now that changes the way you live toward others. You've experienced the love of God, you're going to be loving. You've experienced the mercies of God, you're going to be merciful. You've experienced the forgiveness of God, you're going to be forgiving. It will show up in your life. You will live out who he's made you to be. And so the newness, the root that's in your heart is the spirit of God giving you new life. That produces spiritual fruit, godliness, Christ-likeness. And now today, he says... He explains the role that we have in society as those type of people. He gives us a perspective to say, now as disciples of Jesus, he says, you are salt. You are light in this world. And that's important to notice that those are indicatives, not imperatives. What does that mean? An indicative just indicates a reality as opposed to an imperative, which is a command to do something. He doesn't, he's not commanding them, go become salt, go become light. He says, no, let me tell you what you are, who you are as my disciples, as those who have been saved by the grace of God. You are salt and light in this world. So we got to figure out what does that mean? So let me ask you to inter- interact with me here. These are not rhetorical. I do want your input. What does, what does it mean to be salt of the earth? We've all heard that phrase, you know, man, he's a salt-to-the-earth kind of guy. What does the world mean when they say he's a salt-to-the-earth guy? Or what's the common meaning of salt-to-the-earth kind of person? Who said that? Okay, you did your homework. That's perfect. Right on the button. Forget she said that. Let's go with some close answers instead of the dead-on answer, all right? Good job. But like when we say a a salt-to-the-earth kind of person, uh, what do you all think of? Say them loud. I'm going deaf. A hard worker, that's what I thought of too. I thought calluses, someone that when I need to help fix something at the house and I'm clueless as usual, I call that person. And they're like, yeah, I got this. What else? Com- what? Common? Common, yeah, just a common salty earth kind of guy. What else? All right, what do you think of with salt? Regular old salt. Preserve, we, we kind of got that already. What else do you think of when you think of salt? Wow, we got it now. All right. Flavor? I heard flavor. What else did I hear? French fries? Okay. Flavor on French fries. I'm hearing you, brother. Let's go get some after service. What else? Salt. What did you hear? What do you think of when you hear salt? Pepper. (laughs) Y'all are a little more challenging. Uh, Y'all are like cats. Let me get this all going here. Salt, pepper, French fries, preserving flavor. What happens when a salt gets in a wound? It stings. Is there some beneficial value there? It heals. Yeah. Uh, what happens if uh, someone after the church said, yeah, I used to pour salt on the fence line. It kills the grass, right? If you have too much salt, it, it does damage. So all these ideas come to mind and we think about what they were thinking. Now, anytime you hear the word in the Bible and you're like, what does that mean? Your first step should be to search the scriptures for how that word is used. Now, it's not as helpful in this case because it seems to be Jesus is just using a metaphor that they were familiar with. Usually you can find how an author has used a word and said, okay, that's what he means. In this situation, it looks like Jesus is using a metaphor that they would be familiar with when he says, you are salt of the earth but if salt has lost its taste, how will it be, how its saltiness be restored? So what does it mean to be salt? When we think about salt, is it a, is it a rare commodity or is it, it's, no, it's not a rare commodity. It's very common. It's not really expensive. It's very available. 
but we also see that it has a variety of very important effects. Salt cleanses, salt purifies, salt preserves from decay, salt brings out the richness or brings up the flavor in items, salt heals, salt creates a thirst. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, this is the spiritual function that you serve in society, in the world in which you live, in the friend group that you have, wherever you go, you are to be the ones who, who have a spiritual preserving, cleansing, thirst bringing, enriching of life, that you have a healing, purifying effect with the people in which you come encounter with. This gets to the very essence of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Again, he's sitting down with his disciples. He's saying, this is, this is who you are. You're the salt of the earth. So it's not necessarily referring to, are you a calloused hand? You got calluses on your hand because you do hard labor. No, it's a character issue. He's saying, I, I saved you to his disciples. Listen, I've saved you. I've called you from your fisherman business. I called you from your tax collecting business and your old way of life. And now I want you to know, you came to this because of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And it's going to change the way you live with others. And I want you to understand that I'm sprinkling you out on society. And I want you to be a preservative. I want you to have an impact on society wherever you go. I want you to be different at work. I want you to be in contrast to those who you see at, at work. Or I want you to be a different kind of marriage. I want you to have different kind of parenting. I want you to be different in your public comments. I want you to vote for a certain kind of people. I want you to champion certain biblical causes. And so he's saying, listen, as disciples, you should and you will, if you are truly my disciples, have a preservative effect, a salt effect on society. And so what does this look like for us? As I thought about it, I thought, first of all, on a national scale, it means that we have a preservative effect, a healing, a, an enriching of life effect on the fact that we should be publicly our political, our, our societal, our stances should be in support of biblical values. We should be in strong support of the example of the, the supreme value of human life. That at whatever stage in the game, whatever economic class, whatever race, that, that life is valuable. All of life is made in the image of God and bears the dignity of God and deserves tremendous supreme respect means that we promote pro-life laws and politicians that we support should be encouraging pro-life. That's not about a, a, that's not about a, a party, a, a political party. That's about preserving life. We should be, uh, in our health care debates, that, that we aren't just about the money, that we understand that life and health are important and that we should figure out ways to provide and, and do it in the, a way that honors the Lord. It should mean that at the end of life, especially as we see healthcare going the way it goes, and these are not political statements. This is about being Christ-like. That as life starts to be viewed as how much it costs, when does life cost the most in healthcare? At the end of life. And we should be the champions that say every life matters. Don't ever end a life to save money. 
And so we stand for biblical values. When you think about another example, this, has anybody heard of the Nashville Statement? The Nashville Statement came out. It was a group of evangelical Christians, the, the brightest minds of our faith, the ones that when I read their stuff, I think they get more done when I was asleep than I can get done in a lifetime. And they wrote a statement of sexuality, addressing the issues that we face. And they did it wonderfully because they did it faithful to the scriptures, but they did it in love. Their goal was to preserve life, to, to help us have clear thinking. It's, it's a process of affirmation and denials. We affirm this because we see it in the scriptures, but we deny this because we see it in the scriptures. I encourage parents to read this with your students. They are growing up in a very confused world about sexuality and gender issues. And, and this statement just very clearly lays out there. We affirm this from the scriptures and we, we, we don't affirm this. So these are ways that we as Christians, as light, as salt in the world, can preserve God's values, God's morality. But most of this, I think, will play out in our everyday lives. Plays out, remember the four categories, the four places to think about all these practical. Where do we apply these? Think about your your home. That's marriage. That's parenting. That's your family. If you're a a child and you think it's about being, how to relate to your parents. Think about your church in your community group and these relationships. So home, church, the workplace, and finally in the community or just all throughout town. That includes like social media. That includes your politics. That includes everything. How do, how do we apply these in our everyday life? What Jesus is saying, since it's an indicative, he's saying, let me tell you what's going to happen to you as my disciples. When people come around you, they're going to moderate their language. When people come around you, there's going to be times that you walk into a conversation and it's going to get real quiet and you're going to realize I just stepped into something. When people come around you as my disciples, Jesus is saying, they're not going to want to tell those off-color jokes. They're going to clean up their act a little bit. You're going to have a preserving effect on people. Does that happen? Jesus is saying that's what happens with my disciples. And so we should examine our lives. Is that what's happening to us? Does the way we live, does who we are, does our character, does our integrity, does our work ethic, does, does our life impact? If you're on a work team, if you're on a team uh, uh, on a project at work, does the way, does your work ethic encourage hard work in others? Are you the one that's kicking back and loafing and bringing the team down? This is not easy to put in place, especially if you're a people people pleaser like me. I can't tell you how many times playing golf with someone I don't know. Two or three holes go by, about hole number eight, number nine. At least by the turn, after we've kind of gotten to know each other, that conversation happens. So, what do you do? And I was like, oh, here it goes. I'm a pastor. And usually there's one last cuss word. When they say, oh, really? What have I been saying and doing the whole time? And what I want to say at that time is, 
oh man, don't worry about it. It's good. You know, I'm just like you. We're all the same. Don't think of me different as a pastor. I have been convicted with this text. Now, I don't want my personality to be obnoxious and, and to be an irritant. But what God has told me this week is quit apologizing for being that way. Now, sometimes it's because of the title, but hopefully my life... You see, what I want to do is put them at ease. And honestly, that's not it. What I want to do is put myself at ease. I want to feel like the rest of the guys. I want to fit in. It doesn't go away. I want to, I want to just be just like her. I don't want to be different. I don't want to be viewed different. When I walk into a conversation, I don't want it to just be like, Ooh. You know, my kids grew up preacher's kids, right? And what? don't feel bad because 90% of you have done it. What do people say to preacher's kids? Is it hard being a preacher's kid? I'm sure it's hard being a preacher's kid. Is that hard? And you know what I tell them when we get home? You're not a preacher's kid. You're Jesus' kid. And I said, if you think it's hard to live up to my standard, that's not what it's about. I said, you represent Jesus. And as life as a Jesus kid is hard because you're not going to fit in. You're going to stand out. You're going to be different. And you're going to feel it. And you're going to feel isolated because of that. That's not about being a preacher's kid. It's not about being a, a deacon's kid or an elder's kid. It's about being a Jesus kid. And it, it, there comes with it. It's not a surprise that right before this, Jesus was talking about when you experience persecution, rejoice and be glad. Because if you stand for Christ and his righteousness, if you are a Jesus child, as we all claim to be as his disciples, then we are going to be persecuted. It's going to be isolating. And so it's not easy to feel that way. But Jesus says, knowing what we're thinking, but if salt, in verse 13, has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. How does salt lose its saltiness? It gets diluted. It gets mixed in with something so much so that the saltiness doesn't have effect anymore. So what Jesus is saying is when our lives become diluted with the worldliness of the world so that, that we're not having a salty effect on people, he says, what's, what, what's the point? I made you salt. I sprinkled you on society. If you become diluted, what do you, what do you, what's the point? And so he says, you are salt. This means that our integrity should cause others to say, I want to be more honest. means that our, our work ethic inspires hard work in others. It means our words, our language builds up. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, not tearing down, but building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Words are powerful. Our words should build up. Let's start in our marriage. Our words should, should build up. Our words should create a thirst for righteousness. 
Our words should be healing. If they sting, they are stinging for the purpose of healing. They are speaking the truth in love. It's extending grace. It's what it should be in our parenting. Ouch. In our parenting, it's not just act right or else. It's offer the grace of Jesus Christ. Model forgiveness when I sin against my parents. I, I mean, when I sin against my kids, am I willing to go in their room and say, listen, I sinned against you. And model grace and forgiveness and teach grace and forgiveness along with discipline and right behavior. Bosses, how do you treat your employees when they don't reach their goals? When they're over budget, they don't meet their quota, when they mess up a big account, when they blow it. How do we how do we talk to our employees? The way we should do it should have a preserving, edifying, seasoning effect. Jesus says, you are salt as my disciples. Next, he says in verse 14, you are light. What does it mean to be light? I thought Jesus was the light. In John 8, 12, John says Jesus is the light of the world. In Colossians 1, 12, Paul says that we came to Christ. We were brought out of the kingdom or the domain of darkness and into the kingdom or domain of light. In Ephesians 5, 8 through 14, Paul says that we are children of the light who should have nothing to do with deeds of darkness. And we are to expose with our light the darkness of the world. And so we see light is impossible to be hidden in darkness. Darkness is the very absence of light. It is black and white. It is contradictory. You cannot have both. It's irrational. And so Jesus says, you are light. Doesn't command us just to be light. He says, you are light. That's who you are. When you're living the life of the disciples, the humility, forgiveness of God has changed you. The Spirit of God has radically changed you, and it changes the way you live with others. You are light in the world. It's a very practical message. And as we consider what this means, we go on. He illustrates. He says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. I've been in Africa where it is as dark as you can get in South Sudan, Africa. There's not city lights that are kind of diluting the darkness effect all around. But you can see if there is a town miles and miles away, a city of lights, you can see it as far as the eye can see. You can't hide it. If this room was total darkness, you turn on the lamp. You can't hide it. He says there's verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. It just doesn't make sense. You don't light a lamp and then say, let's, let's hide it. But you put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, you are light, so let your light shine before others so they may see your good works. There's something we can grab onto. So they can see your good works and give glory to God or glory to your Father who is in heaven. So first he says, he talks about the irrationality of of a city of light on a hill and a lamp being hidden. It, it, it just doesn't make sense. Lights shine. Salt is salty. You are salt. You are light. Being 
light, it's meant for people to see. Well, what are they supposed to see? Your good works. Well, wait a minute. I thought it says in the Bible, you don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. I thought I wasn't supposed to show my good work. No, what? That verse where Jesus is saying, don't let your left hand know what your right hand do, and he's talking about the Pharisees who were giving money in the offering plate and going, ooh, look at me. Look how righteous I am because of my spirituality, my religious deeds. He says, no, that should be done in secret. It's not about, it's not about getting reward from people. It's about getting reward from God and being faithful. So that's what he meant there. But here he's saying, listen, if you are living the Christian life, you are being faithful to live out the life that Jesus has put in you, it will shine. There will be a difference. You will do good deeds. You will go help uh, hurricane relief, like you're going to hear, we'll have an opportunity. Or you will help a friend out in need. Or you will give and support. Or you will be a person of integrity and honesty. It will shine and, and that's what's kind of considered in all this, your good deeds. And he says, let it shine to the glory of God. One writer said that we're not the sun, we're the moon. The moon doesn't shine its own light. The moon reflects the light of the sun. Jesus is the sun. He's the light. And his light reflects off of us so that when people see our good deeds, whatever goodness they see in us, it all points to him. We say, that's Christ. That's the difference Christ has made in my life. As it brings glory to God. And what does a light do? A light gives direction. If you don't know where to go, you look for the sun and you see it's, oh, this way. So I know how to orient my life in, in response to the sun. Or if I know in, in Africa, okay, I always know I keep that city, that light out there on my left. I can, I can find my way. It gives, it gets bearing. Light also shines on dark deeds. Life, light exposes like the salt stings. And that's another aspect of that role that is hard for me to embrace. But it's part of God's design and why he has sprinkled us into society is to be salty and to be bright. You ever wonder why the the meat, have you ever been to a foreign country where the meat is just hanging and you're like, Jared, on this mission trip, are we eating that? And he just kind of doesn't really answer you. It's because you're going, how can that meat not spoil? How do they do that? Is there no refrigeration? It's because they rub salt into the meat. And it preserves. It delays the putrefaction. It delays the decay. And so meat like that can last for long, long periods of time. We are to be rubbed into society. We are to be rubbed into the places where God puts us to have a preservation effect, to slow the path of decay to reduce the level of putrefaction in our worlds. That means we can't hide from people. We can't withdraw from society. The Bible says we are in the world, though we are not of the world. So we don't go hide in monasteries. We, we, we get in the world. As you are going, make disciples. As you are parenting, as you are a doctor, as you are a teacher, as you are 
whatever your role is, you are salty and you are light. So he's challenging us at, again, at the character of who we are, not faking it, not being that phony, obnoxious person that's just all showy. We're not talking about that. It's just who you are if you're in Christ. First Peter 2.12, Peter says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, the rest of the world, keep your conduct among them honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. That means be that kind of person that is so unquestionably Christ-like, has that character that if someone falsely accuses you, that your reputation stands for itself. And people say, that, I just can't be true. That's what Jesus says. This is, this is what it means to be my disciples. To be salt and to be light. When you look throughout church history, you can see how the light of Jesus has shined wherever his followers go. Do you know that it is Jesus' followers who invented the concept of hospitals? It is Jesus' followers who created schools, education systems. It is Jesus' followers who invented orphanages to take care of those who are the fatherless. It is Jesus' followers who first started not a political statement, who first started labor unions to create safe work environments for people. It was Jesus' followers who did all these things that has radically changed society. Wherever Jesus' people are, it impacts society. I was preaching on a trip, a mission trip in Indonesia. Jerry and I were on this trip many, many years ago. Charles was on this trip. We went to Indonesia, a, a dominant by Muslim, by Islam, and it was dark, dark, dark. I can't explain it. You could literally know when I walked out of this part of the community and into this part of the community, it looked different. The houses were more organized. They were cleaner. And it wasn't about economics. It was about respect and dignity and hard work and care. And in a place where there was abuse and oppression, where people were used to get what those in power wanted and where kids were, were taken advantage of to get them, oh, you want something better? You want a better life? They were brought in and they were trained up to be terrorists. And in the middle of that, there was community there was the light of Christ. There were orphanages, but it wasn't a program. It wasn't, it wasn't official. It was this Christian family, when their parents got killed, took in their kids. And there was health clinics. And there were schools. And you know who taught all the kids from all around at these schools? It was the Christians who came and taught. Wherever the light of Christ goes, it makes a difference. Jesus says, you are my salt. You are my light in this world. 
Are we being who he says we are? So what is our challenge here? Again, you don't do good to be saved. You are saved by grace to go and do good. My challenge this week is very simple. Embrace it. Embrace who God has made you to be. Quit looking for ways to be different. Quit apologizing. If the light of Jesus exposes darkness, so be it. Now, I don't want my personality to offend, but if my righteousness, which comes from Christ, stings a little, let it sting because it brings healing. So just understand God's design. He saved you. He put his light in you. He made you salty. Now embrace it. It's part of God's plan for preserving society and pointing people to the righteousness of Christ that they may come to know Jesus Christ. So each week we've been trying to give you an action step. Have you been doing the action steps? Anyone anyone got a journal? That was the first one. Or have you said, oh, I missed that one. We're on to step four. I'm just going to drop it. All right, good. I see some journals. What was the point of the journal? The journal was, I'm listening to Jesus, I'm walking with Jesus, I'm taking notes, I'm recording prayer requests, I'm recording answers to prayer requests, I'm recording what's going on in my, my group members' lives, and I'm, I'm having a relationship with Jesus, and I'm writing it down. If it's an iPad, great. If it's on a spiral notebook, great. What was next? Engage some people. Encounter them. Just, just start looking. God's got, he sprinkled you as salt into society and he wants you to have encounters with people for a reason. He wants you to preserve and he wants you to be light. Point people to Jesus. That's the direction and perspective in your life. Has anybody done that? Did you have those? Oh, a lot less hands here. All right. Okay, we got some, got some head nods. We said, hey, ask them. Describe Christians. I wasn't so concerned about their answer, but the idea was that you interact. Yeah, guys, come on up. I'm proud of you. Way to be a leader there. So come on up. So you interact and you say, hey, and then you have that conversation. Did you pray about them in your group? Did you pray for them by name? Are you still thinking about them? Did God give you a divine encounter? He may not. It's okay. But Jerry and I were talking and Jerry was so excited. It got me excited. He says, can you imagine if all the, the couple hundred people left our church and started having these engagements? Imagine the variety of encounters the Lord might be giving us. Imagine what's going to happen from that. But we got to do it. We got to engage. So you're supposed to be praying for them by name. Now, the last the, the application this week. Let no unwholesome thing come out of your mouth. There's a, there's a two-fold challenge there. On the negative, don't let anything unwholesome come out of your mouth this week. Pray, God, help me. Help me use my words and help me not to let unwholesome things come out of my mouth. On the positive side, spread grace. Spread grace. Speak blessings into people's life. You don't have to be weird. You don't have to be weird when you do this. You know, oh, the God says. No, just be yourself. Be yourself. But just watch your mouth. James has a lot to say about your tongue. Guard your tongue. Say something that's biblical in your own personality. Someone's griping. You know, 
I've seen the Lord do some pretty amazing things in some places that I thought there's nothing good to come out of it. Oh, my gosh, what's he going to say? See what he says. See what she says. Just use your words to edify, to build up, to preserve, to shine light, to promote God's ways. And just see what happens. And then if it freaks you out and they say something you don't know what to say, just say, I'll get back with you. And then go to your community group. Call me. Ask me. Ask, what do we do? This is how it works. You're going to see this, this is exactly what the disciples, that they came out and said, Jesus, whoa, wait a minute. We got a lot of questions when we start applying this stuff. So go make disciples. Father God, help us be disciples. Help us be who you've made us to be. You've made us salt. You've made us light. Those of us who have trusted in Christ and have the light of Jesus Christ in us, those who don't, Lord, I pray that they will long to know the cleansing, the chain-breaking, the freedom, the cleansing light of Jesus Christ this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.